Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Okay, so today I'm finally going to give a full account of what happened with my TED Talk. In the intro to my debate with Jamel Bowie, I mentioned that there was some inner turmoil at TED surrounding the release of my talk, but I left it there. Now I'm at liberty to give a full account of what exactly happened with the release of my TED Talk. So let's go back to the start. This past April, I gave a talk at the yearly TED conference in Vancouver, Canada. In that talk, I defended colorblindness, which is the idea that we should treat people without regard to race, both in our personal lives and in our public policy. That's also the topic of my upcoming book. Even though a majority of Americans believe that colorblind policies are the right approach to governing a racially diverse society, we live in a strange moment where many of our elites believe that colorblindness is actually a Trojan horse for white supremacy. Taking that viewpoint seriously, while ultimately refuting it, was the point of my talk. As you might imagine, TED is a well-oiled machine. So in the weeks and months leading up to the conference, I wrote my talk, revised it in coordination with Ted's curation team, and cleared it with their fact checkers. I've never been more prepared for a talk in my life. And on April 19th, I stepped on stage in front of an audience of nearly 2,000 people and delivered it. Now, Ted draws a progressive crowd, so I expected that my talk might upset a handful of people. And indeed, out the corner of my eye while I was speaking, I saw a handful of scowling faces, but not many. The reaction was overwhelmingly positive. The audience applauded, and some people even stood up. Throughout the meals and in hallways, people approached me to say they loved it, and those who disagreed offered smart and thoughtful criticisms. But the day after my talk, I heard from Chris Anderson, who was the head of TED. He told me that a group called Black at TED, which TED's website describes as an employee resource group that exists to provide a safe space for TED staff who identify as Black, was upset by my talk. Over email, Chris asked if I'd be willing to speak with them privately. I agreed. I agreed to speak with them on principle. The principle being that you should always speak with your critics because they may expose crucial blind spots in your worldview. But no sooner did I agree to speak with them than Chris told me that actually Black at Ted was not willing to speak to me. I never learned why. I hope that this strange about face was the end of the whole drama, but it was only the beginning. On the final day of the TED conference, TED held its yearly town hall, at which the audience can give feedback on the conference. The event opened with two people denouncing my talk back to back. The first woman called my talk racist as well as dangerous and irresponsible, comments that were met with cheers from the crowd. And the second commentator, Otho Kerr, who's a program director at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, claimed that I was, quote, willing to have a slide back into the days of separate but equal. Now, my talk is online, so you can judge for yourself whether these accusations bear any resemblance to reality. Hint, they don't. Anyway, in response to their comments, Chris Anderson took the mic and thanked them for their remarks, but he also reminded them that, quote, Ted can't shy away from controversy on issues that matter so much, which is a statement I very much agreed with. And because he said that, I left pretty confident that Ted would release and promote my talk pretty much just like any other. 
So flash forward to two weeks later, Chris emails me to tell me that there's a lot of blowback on my talk and that some internally are arguing that we shouldn't post it. In that email, he told me that the, quote, most challenging blowback had come from a well-known social scientist who I later learned was Adam Grant. So Chris quoted from Adam's message directly. This was his message. Really glad to see Ted offering viewpoint diversity. We need more conservative voices. But as a social scientist, was dismayed to see Coleman Hughes deliver an inaccurate message. His case for colorblindness is directly contradicted by an extensive body of rigorous research. For the state of the science, see Leslie Bono, Kim, and Beaver, 2020 Journal of Applied Psychology. In a meta-analysis of 296 studies, they found that whereas color-conscious models reduce prejudice and discrimination, color-blind approaches often fail to help and sometimes backfire. So that was his message. So I read the paper that Adam referenced, expecting to find what he had said, arguments against colorblindness. I was shocked to find that the paper largely supported my talk. In the results section of the paper, the authors write that, quote, colorblindness is negatively related to stereotyping and is also negatively related to prejudice. They also found that, quote, meritocracy is negatively related to discrimination. Now, remember, negatively related means that as colorblindness goes up, prejudice and stereotyping go down. As meritocracy goes up, discrimination goes down. That was exactly the point of my talk. So I wrote back to Chris, quote, Far from a refutation of my talk, this meta-analysis is closer to an endorsement of it. The only anti-colorblindness finding in the paper is that colorblindness and meritocracy are associated with opposing DEI policies, DEI being diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I go on. Well, I do oppose race-based DEI policies in most, but not all, cases, unapologetically. But that's a philosophical disagreement, not an example of me delivering incorrect social science. I feel it would be unjustified not to release my talk simply because people disagree with my philosophical perspective. By that standard, most TED Talks would never get released, unquote. To which Chris responded, thanks, Coleman. Great note. More soon. So before this email exchange, I hadn't seriously considered the possibility that TED might just not post my talk at all. That really just hadn't even crossed my mind. What's more, the fact that the most challenging blowback to my talk was a social science paper that actually said the opposite of what was promised, and in fact said that colorblindness reduces stereotyping and prejudice, just puzzled me. So about a week later, I received an email from Whitney Pennington Rogers, who is the current affairs curator at TED and the point person for the curation of my talk. She's who I had been working with for months. Whitney said that in lieu of releasing my TED talk normally, Ted was inviting me to, quote, participate in a moderated conversation that they would publish as an extension of my talk. Now, I'm always happy to converse and debate, so I agreed, too hastily in retrospect. See, I had assumed that the phrase, as an extension of your talk, was meant metaphorically. In other words, I thought that this separate conversation would be a separate video. Only later in the email exchange did I realize she meant this literally. In other words, Ted wanted my talk and this other conversation to be a single combined video that gets released at the same time. I saw two problems with this. First, it would hold the release of my TED Talk hostage to the existence of this other hypothetical moderated conversation, which at the time wasn't even guaranteed to happen at all. Now, in the past, I've had people back out of debates. I've struggled to find debate partners. So looking back at the time, I didn't even know this other conversation was going to happen, and I didn't want to hold my talk hostage to an uncertainty. 
And secondly, I worried that tacking a debate to the end of my TED Talk would effectively put an asterisk next to it. It would imply that my argument somehow shouldn't be heard without also hearing the other side, or that my talk shouldn't be imbibed without a chaser. Now, given that my talk had passed the initial fact-checking, the curation team, and had been cleared by Anderson and Rogers themselves, I saw no reason why it shouldn't just be released and promoted normally, and I told her this over the Zoom call. So because she and I were unable to come to an agreement, I had a follow-up call with Chris. And on that call, he conceded to me that his employee's anger stemmed from political bias, but he still asked me to agree to an abnormal release strategy. His proposal was that Ted would release the debate and the talk as separate videos, but at the same time. He sold this idea to me as a way to amplify my talk, as if this release strategy were somehow conceived for my benefit. Now, that made no sense. The reality, which is what I told him, is that all of these non-standard release strategies were intended not to amplify my message, but to dilute it. After all, the whole origin of this situation was the fact that certain TED staffers wanted to squash my talk altogether. And Chris feared a total meltdown if my talk were released normally. So clearly, all of these proposals being pressed upon me were conceived in order to placate those angry staffers, not to amplify my message. So anyway, by the end of all these calls, we had finally reached a compromise. Ted would release and promote my talk as they would any other, and I would participate in a debate that would be released as a separate video two weeks later. I held up my end of the bargain, but Ted did not. My talk was posted on Ted's website on July 28th, and the debate was posted two weeks later. This was the debate with uh, Jamel Bowie. By the time the debate came out, I had mentally moved on from this whole situation, and I was just assuming that Ted had held up its end of the bargain, and I was no longer really paying close attention. All of that changed on August 15th when uh, Tim Urban, who is a popular blogger who's actually delivered the most famous TED Talk of all time on YouTube, Tim pointed out on Twitter, or X, that my talk had only a tiny fraction of the number of views of every other TED Talk released around the same time. This is Tim's tweet, quote, There have been a million talks about race at TED. For this talk, and only for this talk, was the speaker required to publicly debate his points after the talk as a condition for having it posted online. As it is, the lack of standard promotion by TED has Coleman's talk at about 10% of the views of all the other talks surrounding his on their site, end quote. So a couple days later, I checked to see if Tim Urban was onto something. As of August 17th, when I took screenshots, the two talks released just before mine had 569,000 and 787,000 views, respectively, on TED's website. Now, the three talks released just after mine, which had less time than mine to circulate, had 460,000, 468,000, and 489,000 views, respectively. So none of these talks has less than 460,000 views, and some of them are in the high 700K range. On that day, my talk, by comparison, had only 73,000 views which is only 16% of the views of the next lowest performing video in the immediate vicinity. Now, my my debate with Jamel Bowie, who is a New York Times columnist, a famous intellectual with almost half a million Twitter followers, that has performed even worse on Ted's website. As of Tuesday, September 19th, after having over a month to circulate, it had only 5,000 views, 
which makes it the third worst performing video released by TED in all of 2023. So either my TED content is performing extremely poorly because it's just far less interesting than most TED content. And if you believe that, then I really encourage you to just go to TED.com and watch a few talks. Or TED was deliberately not promoting me. And a string of evidence points to the second explanation. Unique among all the TED Talks released around the same time as mine, my talk has still not been reposted to the TED Talks daily podcast. In fact, my TED Talk wasn't even posted to YouTube until I sent an email inquiry about it. According to its website, TED's mission is to, quote, discover and spread ideas that spark imagination, embrace possibility, and catalyze impact. They claim to be, quote, devoted to curiosity, reason, wonder, and the pursuit of knowledge without an agenda. My experience there suggests otherwise. TED is falling far short of those ambitions and instead displaying all the hallmarks of an institution that has been captured by the new progressive orthodoxy. TED's leadership must decide whether it wants to do something about this or else become an organization that's just yet another progressive echo chamber. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.